Welcome to another episode of Inside Golden State Politics. Our podcast is produced and directed by Nancy Boyarski. I'm Bill Boyarski, former city editor and columnist for the Los Angeles Times. And I'm Sherry Bebich Jeffy, political analyst and self-styled media maven, coming to you reeling from the land of the, as President Biden put it, quote, tired, worried, frustrated, end quote. It's a funny old world, a scary old world. Over to you, Bill. Sherry, you know, Omicron, the latest edition of COVID, I've been reading a lot about that, trying to understand it. And I'm confused with the conflicting directions I get from... Welcome to the club. From doctors uh, on cable television, doctors. There's a guy from Minnesota. (laughs) And then there's another guy from Baylor. I think there are three men and women from Columbia and UC San Francisco. I don't know what to do. Should I get tested? Can I go to the mailbox at the corner without getting a test? What should I do? Are you confused? Well, Dr. Jeffy says, take two aspirin and call me in the morning. I mean, (laughs) I'm as confused as you are. I've just gotten a long email from uh, the hospital at which my care is affiliated, and they're confused. They don't have answers either. This is so new, so different from, I think, anything we've been through in my lifetime. And particularly the Omicron, it just happened so fast and it's going so fast and it's exploding so fast. We are well behind the virus. And I noticed particularly today flipping around on the television, a lot of screaming, heavy breathing on the part of reporters and anchors over all of this. And it was beginning to really, really panic me. I'm not sure that's fair. And I'm not sure that's accurate. What do you think? Well, I do think the reporters are taking this rather personally. (laughs) As if they're the only ones who have children and they're the only ones who are suffering. And I think it's also not amusing, but ironic that these journalists who really make their living observing other people's troubles, but not really getting involved in them. That's a, that's a journalist. Well, that's a journalistic trait. You, you observe, but you don't really get involved. That's actually why journalists are lousy spouses. Oh, they don't, boy. They don't, they, they don't get involved. But anyway, here are all these journalists talking about their kids and their problems, and they can't go visit their grandmas, uh, but they reflect the country. I was watching uh, President Biden yesterday, uh, tell, the other day on television, and he seemed to be trying to get a grip on it, and there were parts of his press conference talk that were extremely powerful, especially when urging people to get vaccinated. How do you think the president is doing? Doing in terms of communicating, doing in terms of dealing with the pandemic, doing in terms of dealing with a confluence of crises that have 
hit him, including the pandemic, including the the boxing in of the president on his uh, building back better legislation, including high inflation near the holidays in the midst of a pandemic. I'm glad I'm not Joe Biden. He's he is whether he deserves it or not, skating on very thin ice. Um, I agree that he hasn't had a real lot of time to begin to pivot to the new variant of the coronavirus. But you can also make the argument, think ahead. I think a lot of what's going on is what he's saying now, what he's explaining now, should have been said, should have been communicated in plain English a month at least ago. I don't know whether he can, I just don't know whether or not he he can regroup. He could regroup by one, doing something more, we have government doing something more on, on, on the whole testing issue. I'd like more clarity on testing. I mean, when should you get tested? Do you have to get tested every time you go to the market? <laughs> I have a lot of dumb questions like that, but I think that there are questions that uh, that most people have. Well, let, let me just interrupt one second and remind you that rightly or wrongly, we didn't even really focus on testing early. I, so there, I believe that they're just now coming up with the guidelines that are necessary to communicate. Um, the reason we don't know a lot about testing is that we haven't paid much attention to it until it became apparent that this new variant is so transmittable that we've got to keep putting up more and more barriers between us and the virus. But go ahead. I just, I just need to make that point. So it's at this point in time, it's, not so much the fault of Biden per se as it is the fault perhaps of science and the policymakers uh, to not look beyond, let's say, Delta to other possibilities and prepare before all this for it. You know, we've never, as you said earlier, we've never had anything like this. Not in my lifetime. Not not in my lifetime either, or in many lifetimes. In fact, it will go down in history as an extraordinary event. We've never had anything like this. Mm-hmm. And so one reason we're unprepared is just that. We haven't had any reason to do it. So what Biden is doing is he's, he's focusing in on a couple things that government can do. One of them is vaccinations. And that remains a mystery to me, why people will not get vaccinated. I can't, I can't understand it. All of you who are vaccinated, I don't even want to apologize to you, but it's sheer lunacy at this point not to at least get vaccinated. And I know, you know, you don't understand that what I don't understand is I can still remember um, as 
a child in grade school lining up, no social distancing, to get my polio vaccine. Nobody screamed and yelled and refused it. If people did, of course, there wasn't social media, there wasn't 24-7 cable news, so we might have had some opposition to it, but I don't think it was nearly what it is now. You know, uh, we do do politics for a living. Oh, we look at them anyway. Biden has very made it very clear so far that he's going to run for a second term. If it's, so far. If his health holds up, no doubt that he will. His former opponent is sounding like he wants to run. We may very well have a rematch. How is this whole thing affecting Biden as a potential candidate in the next presidential election? It isn't helping him, of course. I mean, very basically, he campaigned on the argument that he could bring confidence out of chaos and get government doing good again and get these wonderful, wonderful programs moving along and do it in a bipartisan way. Wrong so far. It hasn't worked out that way. And you can see it in his um, downward spin of his approval ratings. Ironically, the, pro- the proposals that he's put forward, the programs, uh, at least parts of the Build Back Better, of course, are very popular with voters, both Republicans and Democrats, of course, more popular with Democrats and independents. But boy, he, his personal approval rating is not a good first sign of where he might end up in 2022, just before the midterm elections. And of course, there's, there, there are what, three, four years before the next presidential election. So who knows what might happen. But you can't get anything done with approval ratings like that. It's as simple as that. You can see it in the way Joe Manchin has just sort of played Lucy to Biden's Charlie Brown, just pulling off the football and Charlie Brown files. He just keeps moving the football. You don't do that to the president of the United States. At least you give that president fair warning. Manchin didn't even speak to Joe Biden before he went on Fox News to say no on legislation. I think that's disrespectful of the office of the presidency. And I think we owe that kind of behavior to what happened under Donald Trump. No respect for the office of the presidency. Let's play what if. What if the uh, government and the health business and, uh, and all the various agencies involved are able to get somewhat of a handle on uh, COVID and all of its uh, new addition in the next several months? And what if Congress, which is now stalemated on the last Everything. element? No, no, Everything. no. On stalemated on on one big portion of the Biden program, mm-hmm. the Make America Great program or whatever. <laughs> That's not it. But, no. uh, but stalemated on that one last portion. Having passed the first two portions, we always forget that. Infrastructure and 
the first uh, rescue COVID plan. rescue right. plan. Right. Those were passed. We we forget that. And so he gets the last portion passed, gets somewhat of a handle on COVID. He's looking good uh, physically. America takes his new dog to heart. Oh. <laughs> Kennedy is jealous. I will tell you that. I guess he would be. Well, he, he has always thought he was first dog. <laughs> well, anyway, all those things happen, and he runs for another term. Why wouldn't he be in good shape? You know, these approval ratings uh, bounce up and down. That's right. Uh, and they don't mean a hell of a lot sometimes. Well, they mean a hell of a lot. The question is, for how long and what is the timing? That's when they have their power. Well, that's right. As you like to point out, a month in election time is a lifetime. I mean, it uh, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen. So I'm saying it's much too early to write Biden off. Oh, I, I agree. I agree. But there are some reasons why people have, have gone ahead and begun to do it, and they're not half-baked reasons. For example, um, he will be charged with any losses the Democrats have in the midterm elections. Of course, he would get he would have some uh, reward for gains. But if you look at what's happening with regard to um, reapportionment, if you look at all the voter suppression bills that are making it through mostly red, southern mostly, legislatures, uh, it doesn't look like the Democrats are at least going to hold on to the House and the president gets the blame. That always happens, though. The president, do a historical analysis, the president always loses seats in Congress, either the Senate and the House in the Almost in the always. In the mid, almost always in the midterm elections. So that will happen. It was an interesting thing about this, probably just a little footnote, but his erstwhile opponent, President Trump. Former uh, president. The former guy, please. That's all we can say. Was on a program with his dear friend, Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> and and O'Reilly says to Trump, have you got vaccinated? And Trump says, oh, yeah, yeah. And he says, O'Reilly says, he says, I got a booster too. Did you? And Trump says, yeah. And the <laughs> booze, <laughs> those people, that's not good enough for his followers, for his so-called base, his so-called loyal base. That's yeah. not good enough. I thought that was very interesting. They booed him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It says something about that base. Well, and it also says something about what we've been mistakenly Adding that up to, it goes beyond being anti-mandate. I mean, it, it seems to me that there's some real dyed-in-the-wool ferocious anti-vaxxers who may or may not really be Trump supporters as much as they are inhabiting that same right-wing turf in terms of this issue, if you will. Because remember, I know, I know out here in uh, Southern California, there are active anti-vaxxers who are pretty liberal, who are not Trumpies. It's a bigger issue than that. That's right. In my granddaughter's elementary school, which pretty much run by liberal Westsiders, there was a very strong 
anti-vax clique. Mm -hmm. As unreasonable on the subject as were any of the Trumpers. And And these people would never, never, never vote for Trump. Never, never. But, you know, it's, um, and that says something about how people are making their choices these days. The people who booed Trump at that particular event, I think, in the end, would vote for Trump. It's that kind of self-selection for all of the other issues. You know, you mentioned voting and all of that pending in the, in the Senate, the Freedom to Vote Act, yeah. which is... which was directed at the problem you spoke about, which is the Republican effort to prevent Democrats, primarily African-American people, from voting. People of making, color. People of color, making it hard for them to get to the voting place. When this bill was uh, introduced and passed the Senate, one of the authors and uh, people who voted for it was uh, Senator Joe Manchin. Now, As I look at that vote, I wonder if the senator who's now uh, positioned himself as as a great critic of the Biden economic program, I wonder if he would now vote for and vote to break the filibuster on this Freedom to Vote Act when it comes up for a Senate vote. I mean, the, the measure is pretty much the same measure that he wrote and voted for in the Senate months ago. Would he now change his mind, or would he continue having some consistency in his life? Well, first of all, you know, it passed the House. The bill has, has the For the People, as the For the People Act. And then it was, um, because it was stalled, they began to reshape it. But um, I don't know what he'd do at this point in time. Would he hold it hostage? as he's held so much else hostage, even with his name on the bill. Um, he is getting pressured so much now. And what I have been reading indicates that he's really reacting, shall we say, strongly, rigidly to the pressure. And I can't imagine that this wouldn't even make that pressure stronger and make him react even more strongly. How much of this is now ideological as opposed to how much is political, psychological, personal? That plays a very different way sometimes, and particularly among the egos that inhabit Washington. If this measure passes, the uh, Freedom to Vote Act, if it passes Congress, and is signed by the president, that'll be a huge victory for Biden. Definitely. For that to happen, that means place the Senate would have to partially break the filibuster. Could you explain that the whole thing? It's not so much the legislation itself as it is the procedure. You can filibuster a bill and, and it will never it will not be brought up. You need sixty votes to break a filibuster and allow a vote on the piece of legislation. And that's just a simple majority for the legislation to pass. But at this point in time, with 50 Democrats, and two of whom, uh, Kirsten 
Cinema and Joe Manchin are not walking the party line, you're not going to get at least 10 Republicans at this point in time to um, disallow the filibuster. So it's stuck. Well, however, couldn't they modify the filibuster yeah. uh, without eliminating it, play some legislative trick? Mm-hmm. Well, remember, the filibuster is a, is a rule, not a law. And it's within the, the purview of the Senate to change that rule. And some of the things that have been kicking around are, well, change the filibuster to require only 51 votes to defeat the filibuster, to make it the responsibility of those who wish to filibuster to do what Jimmy Stewart did and Mr. Smith goes to Washington in the way it used to be, stand up there and really filibuster on the floor of the Senate. Now you can call up um, your leader and say, the majority leader, you know what? I'm filibustering this bill. Okay, goodbye. It's over. No, you can't do that. You put the responsibility for maintaining the filibuster on the opponents of the bill. That's another thing. Um, They're talking about what they call a carve out, which is, and they've done it before. They've done, I believe, uh, on the Defense Act and I believe on infrastructure. What you do is for this one piece of legislation, you only need you 51 votes to stop the filibuster. But on every other piece of legislation, the filibuster, the 60 vote total still holds, unless, of course, there's a rule that allows another piece of legislation to slip around the filibuster rule. But the filibuster rule is still there as it is 60 votes. Now, it's tremendously important for the Democrats to jigger around and carve out uh, this filibuster rule. There's a lot to the Freedom to Vote Act. And What's happening around the country is that 19 states so far, with Republican legislatures and governors, have passed dozens of laws making it harder. (laughs) That's the whole Republican game now, is to make it very hard to vote. The whole game with the uh, Freedom to Vote Act is to make it easier to vote. Now, Manchin may be a conservative economically, But in his whole history, he has been in favor of the right to vote. So this puts a lot of, not pressure on him, but it sort of requires him to go back in his own history and say, wait a minute, I've always been for these things, you know, for years. So why don't I go for this carve out? He might. He might. Yeah, we don't know. By the way, if you really want to know what the provisions of the Freedom to Vote Act are, all you have to do is look at the voter suppression legislation, which has been proposed and passed, as you mentioned. And what we have with the Freedom to Vote Act is basically the polar opposite of everything that those states are doing. It would upend most of the legislation that is now being passed to suppress votes, to make it harder for certain groups to vote. It would 
the Freedom to Vote Act would reestablish in toto almost the Voting Rights Act, which the courts have begun to, shall we say, slim down. Um, and it would be, it would complement the, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which really focuses on discrimination on the basis of race. Uh, it would just, it, what would happen, and this is really fascinating, is probably almost everything would wind up in court. And then the question becomes, what does the court do? With all of the conservative appointments, all the way up to the Supreme Court, what does the court view? They have, um, they've been reluctant to put the hammer down on gerrymandering during redistricting. What else might they do? Might they uphold some, if not all, of the restrictions that these 19 states are putting into play? It's, it's like holding mercury in the palm of your hands. I think that's one of the reasons everything is just so fluid and almost incomprehensible today. And it's layer upon layer, and it's beginning to affect our polity in toto. Sherry, instead of looking forward, let's look back for a moment. What was the biggest story in your mind that we discussed all year? There are two in my mind. One, of course, is uh, the coronavirus and the pandemic and Delta and Omicron. (laughs) I can never get that right. Uh, I mean, what it has done to the world is the major story. And the second is entails everything politically that happened from Election Day 2020 through and still ongoing, I guess, January 6th. The transition, the uh, insurrection, the the meddling and the stubbornness of the former guy, the divisions that have occurred during and after all of this, the polarization that has become absolutely cemented, I think, as a result of what has been going on politically in this country. I know it's that I'm sort of taking refuge in generality, but I think that that generality is deserved and is still ongoing in both cases. I agree with you. I think the biggest thing that we've discussed, the biggest story we've discussed, well, the the pandemic, which has occupied us all year, but beyond that, the biggest thing we've discussed was the treasonous behavior of the mobs inspired by President Trump on January 6th. Mm-hmm. That was a landmark in history that we will continue to discuss and still hard for me to think that it that it happened in our country. Well, look at next week we've got a guest, yes, we Professor, do. Professor Emeritus, <laughs> Bill Schneider, and he's gonna lead us through uh, our discussion of what's coming up next year and what's happened this year. So Yes, we're going to put on our crystal ball and play Karnak. <laughs> See you later. Take care, everyone. Bye. Merry Christmas. Happy, happy holidays. Cheers.